check one, two, microphone, there it is. Hey everybody, it's good to see you. Um, I was thinking about today how it's already been over a year since Christine and I moved here. And I have just loved getting to know you guys. Some of you guys have already gotten to know me a little bit more than others. And for those of you who we haven't gotten to know super well, I'm hoping that as you continue to be a part of NOYA, you get to see not just the preacher, um, but also the person. And um, for those of you who have gotten to know me, maybe one of the things that surprises people most when they get to know me is that I am an introvert. Okay, and the reason that's surprising to some people is because you kind of assume that when there's a pastor on stage preaching in front of people that they're just, you know, naturally more extroverted. And, uh, but everyone who gets to know me, you will find out pretty quickly that I am not an extrovert. Christina is an extrovert, okay? <laughs> she comes into a room full of people at, that she doesn't know and she's like, adventure and fun. And I walk into a room full of no people, of people I don't know, and I'm like, who can I pretend to know so that it doesn't seem like I need to meet everyone at once? And that's just, that's just a little bit of honesty of what it's like to be Eddie. <laughs> and, uh, and when I need to recharge, I don't recharge with a lot of people. I, it's the opposite. I need less people. Normally, it's just my family, my wife and my kids, or time alone. That's how I recharge. And uh, I just set that up because growing up, as an introvert, I, um, I was homeschooled all the way through seventh grade. Any other homeschoolers in the room? Look at that. I am in good company or weird company. We'll find out. Uh, no, Homeschool high five. That's what I always say. Um, so I was homeschooled all the way through seventh grade. And then my parents put me in a, a small, like a really small Christian school. Um, and so it was... It was definitely not homeschooling because I now had classmates, but it wasn't like your typical large class, what many of you guys grew up with. Um, and, and so when they put me in seventh grade, man, I remember that transition being pretty substantial. When, you, when you're like doing school with your siblings and mom was my teacher, uh, to now I have classmates and I had to learn how to do those interactions. And I will tell you, it did not go great at first. Um, and also it was middle school. Some people love middle school. I hated it. Middle school was not for me. I, will, I would never want to go back to those days of my life. That was just me. Uh, high school, I enjoyed a lot more. But I remember making that transition. And at the end of the year of my seventh grade, uh, we went to graduation. Again, it's a small school. And so even though it was graduation, it'd be like, hey, four people graduated. Woohoo! And then also, we'd be like, and we'd give awards to everyone in each grade because there wasn't a lot of people. And I remember at the end of that year, my teacher got up and she started giving an award out and she starts describing a student saying, this student does this and I see this in this student and they have this character trait. And then at the end, she's like, and so I'd like to give this award to Eddie Hoagland and I'm sitting in that crowd. And again, you have to remember all these kinds of environments are very new to me. And when she saw things in me and affirmed them and then said my name publicly, I felt something different than what I had felt from the affirmation I had grown up with, um, with my parents who were very affirming. It wasn't a void there. It was just simply very different to have that seen by someone and then for them to say that publicly. And it affected me more than in just the way you think. The, the way we naturally think about the way it affected me is it blessed me directly to just hear your teachers say, I see this in you. I, I've spent a year with you and I see this in you and I'm affirming that in you and that obviously blessed me but in years after that, I realized that a second thing happened. It was not just a blessing to me to hear that. It was also that teacher speaking direction into my life. 
as she did that. See, what happened is she affirmed things in me that were, she saw seeds, not necessarily like things in full fruition, but she spoke that over me publicly and it blessed me and, and it also set a trajectory in my life. It did both those things. And what that teacher did for me that day at the end of my seventh grade, Paul's about to do that to two groups of people here in Ephesians chapter six. And it's, it's not at all what people are expecting it to be. He's going to not just bless people by the fact that he's mentioning them, but he's also gonna speak direction into their lives. And, and he's gonna affirm a direction saying, this is where life in the kingdom is going to lead you. And he, he mentions parents, he mentions masters, and that's the expected part of the passage. Why, would he mention them? Of course, that, that, would be, that would make sense. But Paul's gonna speak to children, and he's gonna speak to slaves. Why? Because wherever the kingdom of God is showing up, there you will also see the restoration of human dignity. Amen. The restoration of human dignity. That's the, that's the name of this message here tonight. The restoration of of human dignity. But before I dive into the passage, you guys know I like to pray because I want to ask God to lead these next few minutes that we're gonna spend together. So let's pray together. Father, my heart has grieved this week over the fact that so much pain exists in this world because of the denial of human dignity. You made us in your image and we argue with each other that that's not true. So Lord, whatever it is you have for tonight, we just want to receive that. Whatever it is, the word you wanna speak over us, do it, Lord, and guide my words. And I ask that you would do that through the power of your spirit and only in the authority that's granted to me because of your son, Jesus Christ. In his name, I pray and ask these things. Amen. 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 Well, last week, Christina, she did a great job walking us through what Ephesians 5 speaks to in regards uh, to the household. Remember, we talked about this as kind of like the household codes, is what a lot of people call these. And you remember how she talked about the radical message that Paul is bringing by even mentioning the wives in, in Ephesians chapter 5. And this radical message continues in chapter six when he says this. Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. And I grew up in church and so every time I read that verse I hear, children, obey your parents. Anybody? Children, obey your, no, wow, okay. Not my crowd, very cool. All right, I am completely normal, I promise. Um, Children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. Then he says, honor your father and mother, for this is the first commandment with a promise, and here's the promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The first relationship that we're talking about here in Ephesians 6 is that of children and parents. And in the first two verses, Paul gives a direct command to children, and then he gives a general command to all people in regards to their parents. In verse one, he says that children should obey their parents. That's the word he uses. Children should 
obey their parents in the Lord because they're children of God. This is a command of God. So in, in what they have in the Lord, that's how they're going to find the ability to obey their parents. Now, one thought, one thought continuing on what was uh, spoken about last week in regards to women and marriage uh, is that one of the reasons I don't believe that submission is subordination is because Paul uses the word here, obey, with children, and he uses the same word here in a few verses. He uses the word obey again, and he uses that and chooses not to use the word submit. He could have easily used the same word to show uh, the same kind of relationship if that's what he's trying to teach, that wives should obey their husbands, but he doesn't. He uses the word submission, which is a much softer word that's closer to the idea of love and respect than it is to the idea of deference and obedience. Okay, so that's where you can see the difference between the two passages. More support into what was taught last week. Just one thought on that. All right, back to children. Children are to obey their parents. And this is pretty common knowledge. We all know that. As children, we're like, okay, the parents are in charge, so we should obey them. And when I, uh, when I was growing up, I did good at that sometimes, and I did not do good at that other times. One of the times I did not do good at that was when my dad uh, had gotten us this uh, science set, like scientific something set, and I don't know if you guys had, had one of these. You'd, you'd spend like 20 bucks, and, and you do some sort of experiment, and, um, and so I'm there with my brother, my older brother William, older sister Jessica, and then my younger brother Stefan, and we're all sitting at the table, and the way it worked is they would tell you what to do step by step, and there was a test tube that would hold a liquid, and then there's these tongs, I think they're called, where you hold the test tube. And here's the thing about those things. They do the opposite of what you expect. So the way these things work is if you squeeze it, it will let go of the test tube. And then if you loosen your grip, it will grab harder to the test tube because there's like a spring inside of it. That is completely backwards. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me, especially I was somewhere around six years old when this happened. So everyone's kind of like taking their turn. My dad's like, okay, you do this, Jessica, you do this. Then it comes to Eddie's turn, and he hands me the test tube already held by the tongs, and he says, Eddie, don't squeeze it. Don't, don't squeeze it. Why? Because if not, it'll break. And so he says, all that. So don't squeeze it. So my job as a child was just to obey that and not squeeze it, and yet I get handed the test tube, and I mean, it's just like, I just feel like everything just was a fog from there on. Like, I just, I felt like screaming started happening, directions were given, they're like, pour this chemical in, I, my stress level just went higher and higher and higher, and I'm like, ah, what do I do? What do I do? What did I do? I squeezed it. And so I squeeze the tongs, the, the test tube falls out, it shatters on the ground, the chemical goes everywhere, the, the floor melts, my brother Stefan falls in, and I haven't seen him since. And that was, that's actually a really sad story. <laughs> no, um, that, <laughs> I, I was supposed to obey my dad, and I did not obey my dad in that one situation. <laughs> Um, but, but Paul's instruction to children is that you're supposed to obey your parents. That's what you're supposed to do. And so the question I have is exactly who is a child? That, that's the first question I have. And children, children at this time, the people Paul is speaking to, are the, are the children who lived in the household of the parents. 
Um, honestly, what it means to be a child was much clearer back then than it is today. We've really blurred that line because the, the process of leaving home is less clear-cut and more progressional in our culture. Okay, so back then, there was, I'm a child, I belong to this household, and then at some point, I get to decide, I can say, I'm leaving, and I'm going to get a job, I'm going to get married, I'm whatever, I'm, whatever you want to do, that's your decision, and that's your point of stopping, that's when you're no longer a child, and now you are an adult. And here's the crazy thing, at this time, in the city of Ephesus, that happened between the ages of 13 and your early 20s. The, the concept of a 13-year-old doing that just sounds so bizarre to me. Because I live in this culture, and in this culture, it happens in this age, where you guys are at. Somewhere from 18 is kind of the earlier, you know, on the earlier end of when that happens. And then it happens into mid-20s, late-20s, some people even 30s, and, and to infinity and beyond for some people. Um, and, it, you know, that's, that's much more of a, of a progression in our culture. So being that it was easier for them to understand who they were talking to, that creates a little bit of a problem for us because it's like, well, but what if I'm not entirely out of the household because I still live there and I still benefit from the financial covering of my parents? And so that's where, like, there's no clear-cut answer I can give you as to, you know, do you have to obey your parent if they tell you to do this? Well, that's where you have to put some facts around the decision. Ask yourself, where are you in that process of transitioning? But what I will say is, if you do live in the house, and even if you don't live in the house, but you're on the payroll of the household, if you will, um, that you, you belong to the house financially, even if you aren't physically there, then to some degree, you have to live by the rules of that house. And you have to honor that. And, and the way you can honor that is, is through obedience, if those rules come from the covering of the household. Again, I can't tell you exactly to your situation what that means, but from a culture that's saying, if you're a child, you need to obey, you have to make decisions of how do I honor that principle if I'm still under the covering of my parents, even if it's financial. Um, and, and again, I'm not saying if everything else is independent, but your parents just wanna cover your phone bill, like, that's okay, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, I'm just saying even in the way that they cover your phone bill, you should be honoring to that. Um, instead of being like, they need to. No, they don't need to. Like, you can get your own phone plan. Like, this is them blessing you, and so make sure you honor that in the way that you speak to them. And honestly, I've, I've already spoken to parents who, who have contacted me about the issue of having young adults, because they're like, they look me up on the website, and they're like, that's the young adult's pastor. I gotta talk to someone about this. And what they come and talk to me about is the struggle of, I have a young adult who's living like my child, but disrespects me like an adult. And so how do I, what do I do? Because <laughs> their heart, hear me, their heart is ultimately to raise you into adulthood. The, I've never met a parent who's happy that their child doesn't want to step into adulthood. Never done it. They, their desire is always for you to grow. And their willingness to help you in that transition sometimes is taken advantage of. And there's no desire to honor that relationship. And so it creates a big tension. Because then the parents have to like set a super hard boundary that hurts the relationship. And it breaks their hearts. And it's really, really hard stuff. So the point being, if you're in transition, ask yourselves, what are the, way, what are the conversations I can have with my parents of like, hey, I understand that I'm, I need you, <laughs> like financially, I can't even, I can't reach adulthood right now. I don't have a job, I'm in school, or whatever it is, and have the conversation of, but I want to get there, and what are some things I can do to get there? And 
nine times out of 10, they're gonna give you some helpful, you know, some helpful guidance and they're gonna champion you along the way because like I said, they don't want you to just stay in their house forever. Their job is to raise you into adulthood, okay? So we want to, um, that's where he says, children, obey your parents if you're in the household. But then right after that, even if you're not in that season of like, okay, I'm for sure not a child in my parents' household. I've left the household. Even if you're past it, you still have instruction from Paul when he says, honor your father and mother. Because even after you're not a child, by the definition he uses, you're still, you still have a father and a mother for the rest of your life. That's always gonna be true until the day they're not with you. Honor your father and mother. So I wanted to give you guys three ways, very practical, that I would say this is applicable for us today. Here are three ways that you can honor your father and your mother today. First, listen to them intentionally. Here's what I mean by that. When you leave the household, obedience isn't the primary word anymore. Now honor becomes the primary word. So it is true that you leave the household and they're gonna tell you things that they think you should do and you don't have to do that anymore. They're gonna tell you, no, don't buy that car. That's a bad deal. You can still buy that car if you want to. They're gonna say, no, don't move into that neighborhood. You can still move into that neighborhood if you want to. That's not your primary way of relating to them because you're out of the household, but you honor them by really listening to what they have to say. And it doesn't have to lead towards agreement, but here's how you listen intentionally. When they say, hey, you shouldn't move into that neighborhood, you don't just buck up and say, I'm out of the house, like whatever. No, no, that's not honoring to them. You honor them by saying, why don't you think I should live in that neighborhood? And they tell you their reasons. And then you can ask a follow-up question to that and truly listen intentionally and then tell them at the end, thank you. Thank you for sharing that with me. I'm, I'm gonna weigh all these things. I have to make a decision, but I'm really thankful that you, you said what you said. That's how you honor them, even though you don't have to obey them. Okay, so listen to them intentionally is one way you can do that. Secondly, stay connected with them in ways you feel are appropriate for your life stage. Stay connected with them, and the heart behind that is honor, it's love. Stay connected with them in the ways that you feel are appropriate for your life stage. Guys, your different life stages will change the dynamic between your, you and your parents. That's just part of life. And, and, and this is not always an easy thing, but that's where you have to, as an adult, say, my desire to honor them is to connect with them in the ways I can. And if, if that meets their expectation or not, that's not what I'm worried about. I'm trying to honor them by doing what I can to stay connected with them. And that's gonna change based off your stage of life. Obviously, if you are in your mid-20s and you're not married, that's gonna look different than if you're 19 and you got married at 19 and it's like, and then you had a kid at 21. Like all those things take time and, and they're, they're gonna understand that's gonna change the way that you connect with your parents. But the desire to honor them is simply to say, I want to stay connected. I'm not trying to run away from you. I just wanna stay connected in the way that's appropriate for the stage I'm in in life. Okay, that's another way you can honor them. And then the third way is that you care for them in their later years. One of the greatest ways that people dishonor their parents is they leave them to themselves in their later years. And if you wanna be someone who loves the Lord and follows the instruction of God's word, this is one of the ways you can honor them because you don't let them be dishonored in the way their life ends. You do what you can, and I understand, look, 
each one of us is gonna be handed different circumstances when it comes to this topic. I have no idea. You might already be in having to care for them in some regard. That already is in the room. Maybe that's in the future for you. It's gonna be different for all of us. But the desire to honor them is the desire to step in and help and not say, I'm gonna step out and let someone else figure that out. It's just, it's stepping in because I want to honor them. They're still my father, they're still my mother. So those are the three main ways that I would say we can honor our parents for the rest of our lives. We obey as children, then we honor them for our entire life. Then in verse four, Paul tells fathers, is how it says it in the ESV, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Two points on this verse. First, here's where your interpretation of the previous passage really makes a difference, okay? If you interpret chapter five as saying, husbands, you guys are the boss. You're the ultimate authority in the marriage. That's what head means. You're the boss of the marriage. Well, then, yes, you can get to chapter six, verse four, and say, and dads, you guys are the boss of the family, and you're in charge of bringing up, you're in charge of bringing up the kids in, in the discipline and in the instruction of the Lord. You can totally interpret it that way if, you, if that's what you read in chapter five. But you can also interpret the word fathers in verse four to be a reference to parents. That is a valid interpretation. It just refers to, it's, it's a different way of saying fathers and mothers. Parents, do, don't provoke your children. Much like we do many times in the New Testament when you read the word brothers. Have you ever come across that word and you're like, is that just the men? No, it's, it's like different way of saying children in the family of God. Brothers is a term used to refer to brothers and sisters, as I've mentioned many times. Um, and that's, that's the same thing you can do here with the word fathers. It could mean parents. Um, but if you believe that men are the bosses of marriage, then you can easily believe that dads are the ultimate authority. That's what the Bible's teaching. Now, I don't believe that. And I believe that's actually, I actually don't think anyone practices this. Because even the people who claim that the husbands are the authority, the ultimate authority inside of marriage, those same people, the vast majority of them in those families, the mom is the one who has to take care of bringing up the kids. It's like way over on that side. And the dad's kind of like silent in that territory. And somehow they view that as consistent. Well, if you're gonna hold a view of like the, the, the husband's the boss, okay, if that's your view, then you also are in charge of the children. And you also better be the one spending more time, energy, resources, all that has to be on you because you're ultimately the responsibility. Now, I don't actually think that's what the Bible's teaching because I, what it's teaching us in chapter five is that the husband and wife have mutual love and respect and therefore they share the parenting as parents, they're the ones who are gonna bring up the children. And I'm now living this, I'm like, oh my gosh, if it was my ultimate responsibility to be in charge of like three kids, and I'm also somehow like in charge of the marriage, like that's the most undoable job in the world. So thank God it's not what he's teaching here. <laughs> and, and we're sharing that. And, and that's why parent, it's, it's, a, it's a reference to parents, and you can see that because this is just a little side note. If any theology leads you to an inconsistency of practice, you should question the theology. That's just a general, just, I, that's not even in my notes. I'm just gonna throw that out there for you, okay? Because one of the ways you test theology is if, if you live it out and it doesn't pan out, then something's wrong in what you interpreted from scripture. Whereas here, if you interpret chapter five and six as we've been presenting to you guys, it is extremely practical how it pans out in life and beautifully rolled out in the life of Christian family. All right, moving on. Second point on this verse, 
Um, just because parents are the authority over children, it doesn't mean they can provoke their children. And what that term means is them provoke, provoking them is, is an abuse of their authority. It's them using the fact that they're in charge, they are the authority, to lead them towards frustration, anger, whatever you want to put, fill in the blank, they're the ones provoking it. And this call to parents is to restore the dignity that children have. And they have dignity because they're people. That's the reason. Who deserves dignity? People. Are they a person? Yes, they deserve dignity. Children are people, and that's why they deserve dignity. So much pain in our world could be solved by the simple acknowledgement that if you're human, you deserve the dignity of what it means to be human. This is why God's kingdom is breaking through our brokenness. God says, children are a gift. The world is telling us children are a burden. Children are, are a pain. And God says, no, children are a gift. And this gift is hard work, don't get me wrong. But my primary word is not burden, hard, no, no. My primary word is gift. Because that's the word I get from God. God says, in the kingdom, here's what it looks like, children are a gift. And they're a gift that should be disciplined and instructed for the purpose of what the verse says, of learning the ways of the Lord, and the ways of the Lord lead to joy and fulfillment. That's the purpose of doing that. It's stewarding the years, their children, in order for them to flourish as adults. That's why God has granted them authority, to that purpose. And this affirmation of human dignity goes to a 10 out of 10 in the next verse, Honestly, because this, these letters were read publicly in the churches, I really believe that they read verses one through four and everyone's kind of like on, the, on edge. Like, what is happening? I mean, chapter five was already like, whoa, 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 what's going on? Then chapter six, verse one through four, and then verse five gets dropped. And I, I just believe that there was an audible gasp in the room when this happened. That they're just like children, you know, wives, husbands, and then they say, slaves, and everyone just goes, What? The word slaves just came out in a public reading of the inspired word of God through the Apostle Paul, who's been affirmed by the Holy Spirit as the guy who laid hands on us here in Ephesus and the Holy Spirit came through him. That's the guy now saying slaves, and then he's going to say something about slaves. He says, continuing verse 5, he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Rendering service with a good will, as to the Lord and not to man. Knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. Masters do not, or sorry, masters do the same to them and stop your threatening Know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. You may notice, um, if you have a different version of the Bible, you may notice that the word slave isn't even there. Um, you might have the word bondservant. Bondservants, uh, obey your earthly masters. And... Um, <laughs> I'm sure there's many reasons why translations have to choose different words. Ultimately, I believe the reason they use the word bondservant is they're trying to soften the fact that it's saying slaves. 
Slaves, obey your earthly masters. And uh, the word bondservant is synonymous with the word slave in the New Testament. And so um, when I read this passage for the first time a long time ago, I ended up with a lot of questions. <laughs> I read those verses and I end up with questions like, why didn't Paul just say, masters, free your slaves? Because what you're doing is wrong. Why didn't he say that? Or why didn't he say, slaves, it's wrong that you're slaves? And then, because he doesn't say that, does the Bible endorse slavery? Is that what's happening here in Ephesians chapter 6? Well, let, let's try to tackle what is a very complex topic, but I'd like to tackle a bit of it here because God's word has led us to the topic. When we hear the word slave, you and me, here in 2022, we think of what was done to many of the kingdoms in Africa when they were taken by force and put onto ships and they were sold into slavery in the New World. That's all North America, South America. Most of them ended up in Brazil, many of them in the Caribbean islands, many of them in the United States, and the rest of the Americas. That's the New World. And they bring them as a way to build an economy because the demand of the New World was labor. How do you build a new world and new countries and all these things? You have to have labor in order to build an economy. And slavery happened at the same time as, as the discovery of the new world. And this version of slavery happens at the same time, run by two different countries. And slavery capitalizes on the need of labor and says, we're the solution. Here it is. It's slavery. So massive demand for labor and slavery provides it. Um, and in an attempt to address the tension that Ephesians chapter 6 has, some have said that slavery is, um, you know, the slavery Paul's talking about is super different than the slavery that I'm mentioning now here in the new world. And, um, and there were some differences. So let me just share with you uh, the top four differences that were kind of like, wow, that's super different. Um, so I have it here on screen. We're going to talk about four differences between Roman Empire slavery, which is the one Paul is speaking to in Ephesus in the first century, and then New World slavery, which is in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s. Um, here in what we would understand as slavery. So the first thing that's different is that in the Roman Empire, slavery applied to all ethnicities. Um, there was no ethnicity that was, uh, you know, that didn't have slaves. Uh, so your ethnicity did not send you into slavery or guarantee that you wouldn't be in slavery. Whereas in the New World, it was only those black Africans that were brought and forced into slavery. Uh, in the Roman Empire, most of the slaves could become free during the course of their life. That was something they could have expected. You can throw the next point up. Thank you. Most could become free. Uh, they, would, they would have expected by the age of 30, if they were born into slavery, somewhere around the age of 30, they would have had enough money to buy their own freedom. And so during your lifetime, the vast majority of slaves ended up free in, during the Roman Empire. Now, in the New World, it was lifetime slavery. Uh, if you were born into slavery, the expectation is you were going to end up de dead as a slave whenever your life ended too. There was no sense of, um, of what it meant to end the slavery. And then in the Roman Empire, it involved many skills and professions. Uh, there were slaves who were doctors. There were slaves who were accountants in the Roman Empire. So it for sure was a much wider set of skills and professions. Whereas in the New World, uh, it was a smaller list of professions. And uh, it really focused hard on manual labor. Again, why? Because the demand was work the land. And so this was the, this was the way of responding to that. So it focused on hard manual labor. 
And then finally, um, freed slaves in the Roman Empire were granted citizenship, full citizenship. And if you study the Roman Empire, Roman citizenship is a big deal in that time. So, and they were given that automatically. As soon as they had freedom, they had Roman citizenship, which came with a lot of privileges. And um, freed slaves in the New World were not given citizenship. Um, even when they were freed for, you know, whether they were bought and then someone chose to free them, they still weren't given citizenship in the countries that they belong. So they are different, okay? But here's the most important thing you need to hear. Both of those versions of slavery are wrong. Just because that one's different and it kind of like, oh, well, that's not as bad. No, it's still really, really, really wrong. For a person to own another person is wrong. Why? Because it denies them of human dignity. That's why it's wrong. And just because there's some lesser bad things in one version doesn't make it a right thing. Here's some other things I didn't mention in the Roman Empire slavery. Uh, masters could choose how to punish their slaves in the Roman Empire. And you're like, well, some of them didn't punish them physically. No, that's true. Some of them didn't. But they could have if they wanted to, and no one would have ever done anything about it. And that's why it's wrong. It's wrong that they could have, and many of them did. They were allowed to punish them in whatever way they desired. Slaves had almost no legal rights in, under the Roman Empire. They were denied legal marriage. You weren't allowed to marry. And if you had kids while you were a slave, the slave owner was allowed to take your child and send them wherever they wanted to. What does that sound like? That's the denial of human dignity. You see how it just, it just makes so, it's in our guts. This isn't rocket science. It's just so obvious, like that is wrong. That's obviously wrong. You don't do that to people. And they couldn't own property. And by not owning property, then there's a, there's a financial oppression now in place that they're making sure that they stay in the misery of their poverty. So it is wrong. And if it's wrong... Then the next question is, then why is Paul talking to slaves and masters? Why is he even saying anything to slaves and masters if this is wrong? Well, here's what's happening. Paul is speaking to the current state that many of these Christians were already in. He's writing a letter to real people, guys. It's not, it's not just the doctrine that we've experienced, all the principles of God. Yes, that's in there, but he's also saying, I have pastoral instruction as Pastor Paul who loves you, and you just... God saved, you believe in Jesus and you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit and you're slaves right now. They're slaves. And they're, they're people who believed in Jesus and they were slave owners, they were masters and this is Paul now giving instruction and identifying the situation that they were in and, um, and he's showing them the light of the kingdom, how that looks in the brokenness of the world. That's what he's saying. Here's how the light of the kingdom is going to look. Now, it's kind of like, it's really hard to come up with an analogy, but it's kind of like if I was going to write you guys a letter and I had a list of all your names, and let's say seven years after today, I decide to write you guys a letter and I find out that one third of you guys are in prison serving a lifetime sentence. If that was true and I'm writing a letter to all of you guys together and a third of you are in prison for a lifetime, as a pastor, I would naturally say, well, let me give you a few thoughts as a pastor. I'm like, here's how you can honor God as someone who's gonna be in prison for the rest of their life. Yeah. And it's, it's not me speaking into the situation. It's me just being a pastor to you and saying, here's the way that you can be a godly Christian as someone who's in this situation. And that's what's happening here. Paul is saying, I, you know, they believe in Jesus. There's Christian slaves and there's Christian masters. And he's addressing them both and giving pastoral instruction 
And what's his instruction? Here's his instruction. He says, slaves, bring the good of Jesus into your broken, unjust situation. That's his instruction. It's wrong, but my call for you is to bring the good of Jesus. That's his call to them. Obey them, meaning be, be a good, bring goodwill into the, into the situation. Yeah, it's broken. Yeah, they're not treating you fairly, but if they ask you to do something, do it as if you're doing it for Jesus and not for them. And work really, really hard as if you're working for Jesus and not for them. And that's his instruction to the slaves. And then in verse nine, which I just have to read again to remind you, he says this to the masters. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him, the master, God. Masters, he says something to them. He tells them to stop doing something. What does he say? Don't threaten them. Threaten them is, is, the, is to reference the oppressive nature of what it meant to be a master. He's saying don't abuse them. Don't do the thing that the world is doing and don't abuse them. He actually is redirecting now and saying, don't do this, this is wrong. Don't abuse them and look at his reason because the God in heaven who is the master, the one who stands as Lord over all, he looks down and sees your slave and he sees you as the master and he says, I have no partiality. That God looks at those two people and he says, not one is better than the other. What is he saying? He's saying, God sees people. You see, I'm better because I'm the master. You're worse because you're the slave. And God says, no, no, no. I affirm that both of you have dignity because you're both people. So he speaks instruction to them, but that doesn't mean that he's okay with it. God's not okay with this slavery that's happening in Ephesus. And Paul isn't either. Let me prove my point by taking you to 1 Timothy chapter 1, where Paul, same writer of the book, is speaking to Timothy, which, mind you, is an elder in the church of Ephesus. <laughs> Same city, okay? And here's what he says to him. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane. That's the setup of, here's the kind of people that the law of God is set for. For these kinds of people. And then he starts listing some of them. For those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, and then there it is, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In the list of things that Paul says is unholy, profane, ungodly, sinful, lawless, disobedient, is enslavement. Slavery is right there. So Paul's not okay with it. He's not endorsing this to the Ephesians. He's giving instruction, and then he's also attacking it by listing it as one of the sins, and he says, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Wait, where's, this, where's the doctrine of slavery inside the Bible? How is slavery against sound doctrine? Because sound doctrine started in Genesis chapter 1 when God said, I made male and female in my image, and if you deny that, it's bad doctrine. And slavery denies that at the core. Slavery denies human dignity. And to eradicate slavery from a society is literally one of the hardest things that's ever been done in human history. Because I told you guys, it's not just a moral principle. It becomes entrenched in socioeconomic 
problems now, supply and demand. You built a whole system around it. How do you rip it out of it? Well, it involves changing the moral opinion of masses. And that is very, very difficult to do. It also involves changing the economic situation for the masses. And all those people who, you had free labor because you had purchased people, now I take that away from you. That's gonna affect things for centuries. Okay, when you built a whole system around it, and you're gonna have to fight the uphill battle of always coming back to affirming human dignity. That is so hard to do that in this country, it took the largest civil war that's ever happened to do something about it. But here's, the thing that blows my mind is that it took over 200 years to get to the civil war. Okay, so here Paul is speaking to a, a society that has slaves and masters, and so it's like, well, why doesn't he just say, just stop doing it? Well, this process takes a long, long time to rip it out of society, but what he does contribute is the most important contribution. He attacks it at its root. The reason, the reason slave owners were able to, to abuse of people was because they believed they were less than people. The way they were able to get to that place is because at the core they said, these people aren't really people, they're three-fifths of a person. Or they're not really people, they belong to me, they're my property. And so that's why I can't abuse them because I'm making a ton of money. And that's okay, because they're not people. And the way you change that person is by changing what they're saying about their human dignity. You start with that. And so what you see in the Bible is the New Testament presenting an attack on the views of human dignity. And in so doing, it's kind of like my teacher. They're saying something, and they're speaking a trajectory for the church now. They're saying, this is wrong, and you have to affirm human dignity, and then what's going to come of that belief is going to be the eradication of slavery. And so, yes, it has, it has long-standing effects, but it has been eradicated in some cultures, and at the front line of that, all of the times it happened, it came from this belief that we are made equally in the image of God. And to affirm human dignity is to attract, attack slavery at its core. And that's why the restoration of human dignity, what Paul is presenting to us, is not just here. It's, it's everywhere in the Bible. That's why I can say sound doctrine. It's against sound doctrine because that concept of human dignity, that's everywhere in the Bible. So to bring it to a close tonight, one of the jobs of a preacher is I have to teach you what the passage says. I'm not here to share my thoughts. I'm here to teach you God's word. <laughs> so I have to teach you what the passage says. But then I can also, now that we've understood what this passage is teaching, we can also sit and say, but is there any principle here that can apply to me if, even if I'm not a slave or a master? Is there anything specific to me? And I, my answer would be yes. There is a principle. It's not what Paul is directly teaching. But I think if as a slave, Paul was instructing them to bring the good of Jesus into their broken world, how much more as an employee in a free society should I also bring the good of Jesus into my workplace? And if I am an employer and, and if masters, he's telling them, don't abuse of your slaves, how much more as an employer should I be kind and respectful and honoring to those who I oversee as an employer? Employer. So the good of Jesus should be infiltrating everything. And that's not just from this passage. I've already talked about this in chapter two and three. This is everywhere throughout the book. Our job is to bring the good news of Jesus 
and the good of Jesus. And we're supposed to be doing that in the workplace. And one of the main ways you can do that is living out what I just presented, the restoration of human dignity. There are people in your workplace who don't feel like they have dignity. And you have the opportunity to step in and say, I will affirm that it is as simple as talking to them. It might be as simple as learning their name. Some of this stuff doesn't have to be complicated. But if you sat there and said, all these people are made in the image of God, and it's not right that that person is in this situation, so I'm gonna step in and I'm just gonna do something. You do that something, and what you're doing is you're bringing the good of Jesus into your workplace. So as I asked the Lord, what do you wanna do tonight, Lord, as we, as we close? How do you close the message about children and parents and slaves and masters? Um, I just want I asked the Holy Spirit to be the one to move in the room. So what we're gonna do is, um, why don't we go ahead and all stand together. The worship team is gonna lead us in one more song. But if there's something that got spoken about tonight that you feel like, I don't just wanna keep that to myself, I'd like for someone to pray over me on this topic, then we're gonna create a space here up front and it's totally up to you. Um, you can just stand and worship the Lord and meditate on his word as it's been spoken tonight. Or if there's something you're like, no, I, I'd like to ask for prayer for that. Because for some of you, you're in that transitional stage from child to, to adult, and that's not going great for you. And so maybe you don't have to share all the details, um, but you can come forward. I've asked some leaders um, who are going to come now. They're going to stand across the front. I'll come off stage and just share a, just like a sentence of just like, this is what I'm facing. I'm I'm trying to become an adult and I'm in that transition. It's not going great. Can you pray for me? Okay? And we'll pray over you. And uh, maybe it's, it's not in that category. Maybe it's you feel the, the, the effects of dignity not being affirmed in your life uh, for whatever reason, whatever unjust part of your life you've experienced. And you don't get what I'm saying when I say that we all have human dignity. Well, maybe we should pray over that. Um, and and it, could be, it could even be rooted in the history of slavery. One of the craziest things is that we are all today in 2022, we're two, three, four generations away from slavery existing. So the, the effects of that might be, I'm not speaking this into you, I'm just saying maybe it could be that one of the things that's affected your life is you don't have it in your family that we have affirmed human dignity. And so you weren't taught that and so you act out of the fact that you don't believe that so maybe we can pray towards that. Maybe we can speak that over you that we're gonna pray that that God shows you the dignity that you have as an individual and how you can bring that into the world. Or maybe it is the workplace and you're just like, I'm in the workplace, but I feel like 0% on mission for God. I feel like this has nothing to do with my faith and we could pray and say, God, would you start opening the doors for you to bring the good of Jesus, the good news of Jesus into your workplace. So those are just some ideas I had based off the topics. But like I said, as we sing this next song, uh, there's four of us here up front. I'll come off stage and we'll just pray for as many of you as we can. And, uh, and then after the song, we'll be done for tonight. All right, let me pray and then we'll uh, dive into the song. Father, <clears throat> Father, we thank you for your word. Where would we be without this instruction? Where would we be without your revelation? You are the God who is sovereign over everything, the one who we worship, and we have hope because you speak and we have hope because you guide. And we have hope because you see and you care. So tonight, Lord, we lean into that. 
And whatever it is that someone here needs prayer over, I pray that you would just give them the courage to step out and say, I do need prayer. And that we would see change happen because of the things we pray for tonight, Lord. We're gonna pray in faith. We're gonna pray in the belief that what you are doing is best. So God, we're gonna lean into your principles, lean into your word and pray in that direction. And we pray this in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. You guys come as we sing this next song or you lean in and worship the Lord.